This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, I know uh, it was a short break. I apologize for that, but uh, I want to get uh, get right back into it here. So um, I will... I'm looking at my assistant. There were, do we have any more of those uh, lessons? Okay, somebody was wanting, I need one up here and somebody, another one here. So I need a couple more. If you just hold your hands up, he'll make sure you get one. Uh, And I'm happy for, we've got some extras, so I'm happy for you to have them. All right, uh, if you um, don't mind, just, yeah, hold your hand up. Lady right up here wants one on the front row. All right, let's go back to the text uh, right now and, and, uh, and see where this is going to take us. All right, to demonstrate his... Um, uh, let me back up here just a little bit. Uh, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. And I want to say this. That, there's, that there is nothing that Jesus saves, let me put it this way, that Jesus saves you, Jesus justifies you, plus nothing. Amen. Thank you. He justifies us plus nothing. And we should say, Hallelujah. All right. Uh, Verse 24, chapter 3. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as perpetuation to satisfy His justice, but God set set it forth. God provided His own sacrifice by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Somebody was just asking me, um, again, if Jesus, when, when, the, when Jesus says, not thy will, uh, not my will, but thy will be done, didn't Jesus have to go to Calvary's cross? And the answer to that is no. God could have destroyed the world and still been just. Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. Jesus didn't have to go through that. He went there of his own free will because it was the only way that you could save all right, look at, uh, at 27, verse, uh, just reading down through the, demonst- uh, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier. I want to go back up to 24 again, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. In this context, grace is not something that is poured into you. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Roman church... Grace is something that's poured into you, and then you do good works, and that becomes the justifying factor. That's not true according to the apostle. The grace here is grace that was something done for you, outside of you, and without your permission. How many of you were at Calvary's cross? Very few people, really. 
When Jesus died on Calvary's cross as the sacrifice, the propitiation, that was God's grace doing that outside of us. So in this context of justification, it's something that God does for us because we cannot do it ourselves. And there's nothing you can bring for God to do that for you. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not another context of grace where God gives you his grace to be obedient. I'll talk about that. But that's not a grace that justifies. That's a grace that is sanctifying. And I'll talk about the difference between justification and sanctification just a little later because a lot of people have got this confused. In fact, I worry nowadays that people don't get sanctification and they don't understand the relationship between justification and sanctification. All right. I want to make sure that I didn't miss that uh, somewhere. All right, verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Is there anything that you did to offer that sacrifice on Calvary's cross? And the answer to that is nothing. So there's no boasting. Not by the law of faith. No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, and we could put in Christ, justified by faith in Christ apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Paul is saying this because he wants everybody to understand that when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, that he did not die just for Jewish people. He died for everybody in the whole world. Yes, Jews, uh, Gentiles also, verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised or the Jews by faith and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, by faith. Then he asks this powerful question, which I think is kind of the punchline in, in the book of Romans. Do we then make void the law through faith? And he doesn't just say no. He doesn't just say God forbid. He doesn't just say certainly not. He says God forbid, yea, we establish the law. And here's where Seventh-day Adventists need to be sharing with our friends and our neighbors. The truth is the law of God is established on Calvary's cross and by what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. How is it established? Well, if I'm that fish again and I'm out here in air, the law is going to do what to me? It's, it's going to kill me. It's not going to be established in my heart because it's going to kill me. Am I right? But if I am in Christ at, on Calvary's cross, Jesus established the law by doing two things. First of all, he wipes out my sins. Hallelujah. And then he gives me power to obey him. And to obey him is to obey the law of God. In other words, it's the living Christ who comes into my heart and into my life supernaturally and produces in me a living faith, a living obedience. That is impossible to do if I have just the law alone. But if I have Christ, he's the living law, he's the sum of the law, he's everything the law is and more. He's not only the moral law, he's also the ceremonial law. Because you cannot be saved without the ceremonial law.
That's why I don't all due respect to those who do. That's why I don't believe in people going back and celebrating all the old sanctuary feast days. Why should I do that? Why do I need to do that? Jesus is the ceremonial law. He fulfilled all of it. Every feast day. We're celebrating now the reality of the Day of Atonement. So I don't have to go back to that. If I'm going to go back to that, why don't I drag a lamb out and sacrifice that somewhere? Jesus didn't fulfill just part of the ceremonial law. Hallelujah. He fulfilled all of it. Because He is. The moral law was never done away. If Jesus is done away with, the moral law is done away with. But if Jesus lives, the moral law lives. And that's the message of the Adventist church to the world around us. I, I've had some friends who say to me, Oh, but the law's been done away with. I said, just for sake of argument, let's just say you're right. Let's just say you're right. So, but I have a question for you. What are you going to do with the heavenly Ten Commandments that John saw in vision in J Revelation chapter 11 in the heavenly sanctuary at the, in the, in the uh, ark of the testimony? What are you going to do? You, you can, if you want to say Moses' law was done away with, go ahead. But what are you going to do with the heavenly Ten Commandments? And I have something even more for you. What are you going to do with the living Christ? who you say you accept in your heart, and he declares himself to be the living law. What are you going to do with him? If Jesus lives, the law lives. And if Jesus lives in Jay Gallimore, and if he lives in you, the law lives in you. Isn't that good news? I think it's wonderful news. Because I tell you, I need, God wants me to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law because he wants me to live forever. And that is... The essence, I'll get more into that later. Okay, let's get back to this. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Chapter 4, what shall we say then? Now he's going to give exhibit A. What shall we say then? That Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Oh, wow. So he's trotting out to the Jewish mind, exhibit A, Abraham, and he says some things about Abraham that are very interesting that I don't think most Jews had ever thought about. Sometimes a lot of Christians haven't thought about it either. Chapter 4, that's where we're at. And let me get right over there. I'm trying to follow some of this, but I... If I'm going to get through, because we only have six sessions where I need to go, then um, I'm going to have to keep, uh, is it six sessions that I have? Two, four, six, yeah, right. All right, so a big part of this has got to get done today, so we've got to keep moving here. I don't want to go too fast that I lose you, but I'm going to move a little faster on chapter four. I'd like to get into chapter five before we're done for this session. Okay? And if I'm going too fast, wave your hand so you lost me. Come back down to earth and, uh, and wave me back down. Okay. All right, verse 3. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you work eight hours and you're paid for the eight hours, is somebody just being nice to you and saying that's grace, I'm just giving it to you? Or did you earn it? You earned it. And he's simply saying that Abraham didn't earn it, that Abraham got it accounted to his account as grace. Verse 5, but to him who does not work but believes in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly, explained that already, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Now, I'm going to... um, I'm going to stop right now. My wife is a CPA. She has two loves in life. One of, one of her loves is she loves to do taxes. Why she, I don't know. She likes to do it, so that's great. I don't have to do I just say She just says, sign here, and I sign here, which is pretty nice. Um, but she has another passion. She loves kids, and she loves children's ministries. But I'm going to talk about the accounting part right now. If uh, you see... Uh, and, and Paul is using that. We've got a big problem. Sinners have a big problem. First of all, our first problem is that we're in debt. Am I right? We're, we're, we're not just, you don't have just zero in your bank account. You're in the hole. Way in the hole. You're so far in the hole that you will never, ever be able to pay it out. You, you're never going to get it out. You're way down there. So what Jesus did on Calvary's cross is he added enormous value to our lives. He created value. And some people say, well, how did Jesus create value on Calvary's cross? Question and answer. What is worth more? I know our world mixes this up. What's worth more? The artist or the artwork? How many say the artist? You're right. Why is the artist worth more than the art? Because he's the creator. Am I right? So what's worth more? The creator or the created? The creator is worth more. I would like to suggest to you that John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word... The Jehovah Witness, our friends will agree with that. Even the Muslim friends will agree with that, I think. And the word was with God, and they have no problem with that. But then here's where we all part ways. And the word was God. And there was nothing that was created that was not created without Christ. Christ is the creator. Therefore, he is worth... Hear me carefully. He's worth more than everybody in this room. He's worth more than anybody that's ever lived altogether. And he's worth more than all the living beings right now. He's worth more than anybody that all that will be born. All the sum total of the entire universe. He is worth more. So when Jesus gives his life In place of our life, he created value because he's worth more. And so therefore, he can apply what he earned on Calvary's cross, you want to put it that way, to my account. 
Isn't that good news? So when I, by faith, I accept Christ as my Savior, He not only gets me out of the hole, but He also gives me riches on which to live. He doesn't just merely bring my bank account up to zero. He puts and deposits in me the power to live a holy life for the rest of eternity. You, when, you, when, you, when we are saved and stand on the sea of glass, you see, this is the tragedy of sin. We lost our righteousness, did we not? It's gone. And if it's gone like the prodigal son, you ain't going to get it back. The only way that you have any righteousness is if Jesus gives you of his own. And through the ceaseless ages of eternity, I will always be covered in his righteousness. And I will always be grateful. So it wasn't just he got, he paid your debt. He also put plenty in there for you to live for eternity, which is good news for all of us. And he, he, so he, he brings, uses this accounting thing with Abraham. And I wanted to, to, to use that. By the way, that's, you don't buy a house without real money. Am I right? And you're not saved without the real debt being paid. What Jesus did on Calvary's cross was real money. It's a real thing. All right, moving on through. Um, Verse 7, quoting from Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and their sins covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. I want to say hallelujah to that. I mean, I'm a sinner, but being covered with the blood of Christ, there's no imputation. God doesn't impute sin to me. He doesn't require of me. He, that is forgiven. And verse 9, does this blessedness, this blessed uh, blessing, does this come upon the circumcised, the Jews only, or upon the Gentiles, the uncircumcised also? We know the answer to that. Now, here's his argument with Abraham. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Then how was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? What's the answer? While he was uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham was saved by faith before he was ever circumcised. That's why the Apostle Paul has a problem in Galatians with a group of Christians that were coming around. And I wish I had time to go in Galatians. I love Galatians. Oh, it's got some mighty punchlines. And the real punchline in Galatians is Jerusalem above is our mother. But I'll get back. That's another time and another place. But in Galatians, he was, he, was so, um, he was so upset with Peter because Peter had understood the gospel. And then these guys came along and they said, look, yes, Jesus saves you. He paid the price. But in order to be saved, you still need to be sec- circumcised. And that's why I said earlier, Jesus saves you plus nothing. Plus nothing. And so he's saying here, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. They're saved if they accept Jesus by faith, just as the Jews accept Jesus by faith and they are saved.
All right. I'm going to move down just because of time here because I want to get some of this I think that you can get into. But I want to go down to verse 14 and 15. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promises of no effect. Now that's sometimes people have a hard time with that. He's, it's not hard. It's simply saying that the Jews or anyone who believes that they are justified by keeping the law, that they make faith void. Does that make sense? He's not, he's not against the law of God. He's against the way they're using the law of God. They're not, they're not, um, they're not using it appropriately. Verse 15 is a very interesting discussion. Because the law brings about what? Wrath or justice. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Question and answer. What is sin? The only answer that Scripture gives is that sin is the transgression of the law. But we do have a bigger problem. Am I right, Chris? He's been waiting for me to get to this one. And that's because we are born in sin. Is that true? So, is being born in sin, sin? Well, it's a big debate. I want to tell you what I think. Sometimes truth is not a circle with one point. Sometimes truth is elliptical with two points that are held in a beautiful tension. It's like a husband and a wife. They're different, but they're held in tension in a good way, God's way. Not that they're fighting and fussing but there's different roles within that home. Sometimes truth is that way as well. So I'm going to give you what I think is the truth. Since I only have one definition of what sin is, sin is the transgression of the law, then sin means that when you transgress God's law, that that's when you're held guilty. You're not held guilty for having a carnal nature. But that doesn't mean you don't need to be rescued from it. Does that make sense? Why do you need to be rescued from a carnal nature? Because the carnal nature you're, that you're born with gives you a bent to sin. I say about little babies eventually, as they grow up, it's not a matter of if they will sin, but only a matter of 
And that's not because the carnal nature, which is the tempter, if you please. I wish I had time to talk about temptation. I probably should take a little time to talk about it. It's not the temptation that's sin. It's the yielding. Am I right? I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about temptation. Can you hang that? Hang with me for just a minute on that one. Um, There are two different sources, three different sources where temptation comes from. If you were Lucifer in the kingdom of heaven, there was only one source of temptation. And that's what I call, and another person calls, G. Campbell Morgan calls, the temptation from within. Because Lucifer, like all of you and myself, were created as free moral agents, which means that we could choose not to serve God. Am I right? You're not created as robots. God doesn't want robots. He wants children. I mean, God could have created us all robots, but when you gave him a big hug, you'd you'd just be a tape recorder. What parent wants a tape recorder? When my son or my daughter gives me a hug, they give me one because they choose to. They don't have to. So God created children. So he took a huge risk to do this. So there's a natural temptation within, not that God builds a temptation. It's not God tempting anybody. It's just there because we are what? Free Free beings. So Lucifer came to the place that he decided to tempt himself, if you please, and eventually he sinned. Not because of any outside force and not because he was not created perfectly. He had no carnal nature. That is not true in your case and my case. Temptation comes to us from three different sources. We're still three moral agents, so that is also an issue. Am I right? There's also another issue, and that is that we have a bent to sin in our genes, and the, every generation that goes by makes it worse. So there is a bent to sin. There's a predisposition to sin. So the carnal nature is there to tempt me as well. And then I've got the devil and his evil angels who are also working to tempt me. Eve had two sources, the temptation from within. She did not have a carnal nature, nor did Adam. But then there was another temptation, which was the devil and his evil angels. So there's three sources of temptation. The temptation from within or the free moral agent. The carnal nature, now that we're born in sin, along with Cain and Abel and Seth. And the devil and his evil angels who've been banned to this earth. We really need the grace of God, don't we? (laughs) We have to have the grace of God. Temptation is not sin. Some people get it confused. Don't raise your hand. Every human being has this. You ever had bad thoughts go through your head? That's not sin. It's what you do with the bad thoughts. You with me? By the way, you can't control your thinking. You have people that say, oh, I can't control my thinking. I just have to think whatever comes to my mind. No, you don't. I, if you come out of, uh, I see your hand. Give me just a second. I, I, coming out of Grayling, Michigan, where Camp Osabal is at, they have a bit, one of these big signs on the interstate there that tells you about the snow or the whatever temperature. And one day it had a sign up, the sign was up there, and it said, if, 
if a deer jumps out in front of you, don't swerve. Why did it tell me that? If you're doing 70 miles an hour on the interstate and you jerk your steering wheel, you know what's liable to happen? It's and your life is at stake. So why do they tell me that? What's the benefit of them telling me that now? Before there's no deer in front of me. Yeah, human nature is exactly right. So how am I going to avoid that? How am I going to avoid the human nature, the natural, if you please? Yeah, somebody finally got it. Who said it? Predetermined. You have to make up. They're telling me that so I can make up my mind ahead of time. Follow me? In other words, it, if, I'm not, if I'm not going to yield to the natural, then I'm going to have to make up my mind ahead of time and say, when the deer jumps out in front of me at 70 miles an hour, I'm not going to swerve. Because naturally I'll swerve. I'm telling you with Christ Jesus, you need to take him in the garden and you need to let him tell you where your weaknesses are. And you and he together in that early morning prayer need to make a decision that when the deer jumps out in front of you, you're going to be prepared by his grace. And that's where I've had the Lord Jesus help me with this. No, I have a certain weakness. I have many weaknesses. And, but I say, Lord Jesus, I know that it's not a matter of if that temptation is going to come I just know it's going to come, and you've got to help me. And I'm telling you over and over again, the Lord Jesus exercises supernatural power to help me with my willpower not to swerve. And the other thing is you can't think of more than one thing at a time. Sorry, ladies. I, I say that because sometimes they say ladies can do multitask. So I'm just saying that you really can't think of more than one thing at a time. You might be do multiple things, but you can't think of more than one thing at a time. So if something evil comes into your mind, then change the subject. And say, Lord Jesus, that's why you should do memory. That's why you should remember, memorize scripture. You can start quoting a psalm. Or you can start quoting something else. Why? Because it puts something else in your mind. That's the reason you should learn the great gospel hymns. Because you can start singing those hymns and it puts something else in your mind. It's at, learning to control your mind is absolutely key. And you need the power of the Lord Jesus. So you say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to think these things. I, don't, I, don't, I reject those things. I do not choose those things. And so by the grace of God, you and I are not going to think of them. Let's start thinking about this, Jesus. And even if it comes in a thousand times, you reject it a thousand times in the name of Jesus. All right. I saw some hands here. I saw you back here first, and then I'll come right here. Right. That's right. That's right. It's what you do with the temptation. And uh, so, yes, you had to yeah, speak up loud so my mic hears yeah. you. What I do when, what, if, a, if a bad thought comes to my mind, I just shake my head really hard. Okay. <laughs> and think of something else. It really goes. Yeah. Well, that's where prayer comes in and why it's important that we fight the battle that we must fight. So I wanted to make sure that we understood that. But that doesn't mean that the carnal nature still doesn't need to be dealt with. How many of you want to wake up on resurrection morning with a carnal nature? If you do, you're in the wrong resurrection. <laughs> 
I'll get into that when I get into chapter 6. I'll really get into that a lot more. Uh, but right now, I want to continue because I want to so much get into chapter 5 here. And I think um, a lot of this uh, in chapter 4 is really good, but I really want to go up to verse 20 in chapter 4, talking still about Abraham. Uh, maybe I should back up to verse 19. At, I, I'm in uh, chapter 4. I'm sorry, you, got, you find it? Chapter, okay, chapter 4, verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he, Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. What does God promise to do for you? Uh, I have a friend, Dr. Uh, Ray Holmes, and he, he says what we have to have is not an intellectual faith. We need to know the truth. But he says we must have a believing faith. What's the difference between a believing faith and an intellectual faith? A believing faith believes that Jesus really did save me on Calvary's cross. Believing faith believes that Jesus will save me for eternity. Otherwise, I'm just using Christianity as a nice social thing. And I just really am focused on the here and now. This world is not your home. We are pilgrims and strangers here. I don't know what will happen. We may die early, God forbid. We may die, we may live a long time. I'm not sure always that's the best thing in the world. But at whatever, it doesn't matter. Maybe difficulties come for all of us. But what really matters is do we have a believing faith? Do we believe that Jesus himself will save us when he comes again? Do we believe that because of what he did on Calvary's cross? There's a difference between an intellectual faith and a believing faith. Uh, he's got a great book, if you've never read that, called uh, It's uh, My Journeys. It's a wonderful book. Anyway, let me get back to this. Abraham had this believing faith. Verse 20 says, Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. I read that and I said, "Woo, Lord, how can you say Abraham did not waver? And I thought and thought and thought about that. And I said, Lord, you need to show me something here that I haven't seen. And the truth is that Abraham did try to help God out a little bit. In fact, he tried to help God out a whole lot. Well, the first thing he says, I know you promised me this son, but he's not shown up. I'm getting pretty old here. And how about my servant Eliezer? And God says, sorry, that's not the one. It's going to be come from you, your own body. Mm, got to come from my own body. He and Sarah must have had long talks about this thing. I wish I were in Galatians. I would give you, I would share some wonderful things here that have just been such a blessing to me personally. But I can't go there right now. But... Uh, so he, you know, and then Sarah suggests, and I want to, you want to say, Sarah, don't do that. But she suggests, her young handmaiden, she can have a baby, my womb's dead, she can have a baby, let's, Abraham, let's do this. So Abraham went down that road. And it was uh, not good. And God shows up, and Abraham says, Ishmael. God says, no, I'm sorry. Sarah. God never, when he made the promise to Abraham, ladies, listen up. This is beautiful. When God made the promise to Abraham, he made it to Sarah. Because God counted them as one. 
she too is an heir according to the promise. Sorry, not Ishmael either. Send him away. Talk about bringing sorrow for your difficulties and your bad choices. Did Abraham waver? No, he didn't. I, I came to this conclusion. Abraham never did waver. He believed the promise. He just kept trying to help God out. He never wavered about the promise. How many times have we done that? Got ourselves involved with Hagar's. You know what I mean by that. I'm using that in a symbolic sense. And it's very difficult to break off the results. It takes the power of God to do that. I don't have time to go there. Verse 20. He, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. How did Abraham strengthen his faith? What's the next sentence? If you don't get anything out of this one this afternoon, I hope you get this one. How many of you want a stronger faith? How many want a mighty faith? Well, here it is, and here's how Abraham strengthened his faith. Here's the formula for it. Here it is. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened by faith, doing what? Giving glory to God. We don't give God enough glory. We don't thank Him enough. We need to praise Him more. If we praised Him more and we gave Him glory, our faith will be strengthened. Because as you recount what God has done for you, your faith is strengthened. And verse 21, And being fully convinced, Abraham, that what God had promised, He had promised, that God, He was also able to to perform. Do you believe that? God forbid that you have to die before Jesus comes. But if that day comes, can you stare death in the face? I say to people, I say to Seventh-day Adventists, and we don't say this enough. We don't like to die. Amen? We're not interested in death. We're interested in life. But listen to me. We should not be afraid to die. And our young people should not be afraid to die. I said afraid. It was, it was John Wesley on a boat to America. And the Moravians understood the gospel. And John Wesley did not. Horrible storm. And everybody was crying and screaming. The Englishmen were crying and screaming. The Moravians were calm, peaceful, and singing. After it was all over, John Wesley goes over to the Moravian and he says to the Moravian men, he says, weren't you afraid? They said, no, we weren't afraid. He says, weren't your women afraid? He said, no, our women were not afraid. He says, weren't your children afraid? He said, no, our children were not afraid. He said, why? They said, Mr. Wesley... We all died this morning. They died in Christ that morning. And they trusted Him that day with their life. Therefore, they were not afraid to die. They didn't want to die. It wasn't that kind of thing. They liked to live. They weren't afraid to die. The gospel of Christ should make us unafraid to die. 
Why? Because we're fully convinced that what God has promised, he's able to what? Perform. Can he resurrect you from the dead? Ellen White says to us, that's a big, huge thing, and that's my words, but to God it's not hard. Verse 23, I'm thankful for. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him for Abraham. It wasn't written for Abraham's sake alone. But for us also, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Aren't you glad it was written for you too? Who? Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Who was delivered up or crucified because of our offenses or our sins and was raised because of our justification. Now, I told you earlier that I love that old song, Jesus paid it. But when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, it was not enough. So what does the text say? Look at the text. So when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, it wasn't enough. He had to have a resurrection. You see, we, he did pay it all on Calvary's cross, but it was worthless unless he came to life. We do not serve a dead Christ. We serve a living Christ. Amen. And it's the living Christ in the heavenly sanctuary that takes what Jesus, what he did on Calvary's cross, and he applies it to our life. I had a free will Baptist minister one time, and, and we were talking about some things. He had his members there. They'd been coming to my meeting, and it just happened to show up there. I saw his car. We rode up. I thought, I bet he's, that's who it is. And I was right. And... Uh, and we went in, and, and he, we began to have questions back and forth. And very nice conversation. He's a very nice person. Name was Dennis. And in the course of that conversation, he says, well, there's one thing I just don't understand about you Adventists. He says, you, you have this atonement going on up in heaven. He says, what, what is that? He says, I, I don't think that's right. Jesus paid it all on Calvary's cross. It was finished at the cross. I said, let me ask you a question. He said, no, I don't want you to ask me any more questions. <laughs> we had asked a question about, we got into the Sabbath, and, and he says, okay, let me ask you a question. He says, if, if, my, members, if my members do not, uh, if I don't keep the Sabbath, am I going to be lost? Now, that's a tough question. And uh, because if I said no, I lost my case. I, mean, I don't really have a case. If I said yes, he's going to accuse me of being a legalist or whatever. So I said, let me ask you a question. He said, no, I don't want you to answer my question. I said, no, I've got to ask you a question. I said, he's free will Baptist minister, so I knew who I was talking to. I said, your, your members sitting over here, I said, if they take God's name in vain and they continue to take God's name in vain, and they don't repent, and they keep taking God's name in vain, are they going to be lost, yes or no? And for five minutes, he tried to defend cursing. 
And I finally said, Dennis, are they going to be lost or not? He said, yeah, they're going to be lost. I said, well, that's our theology on the Sabbath. It's true, isn't it? So anyway, he asked me this question about the work being finished. So I said, let me ask you a question. He said, no, please don't ask me more questions. I said, you've got to understand Jesus' method. He's a great questioner, not just any stupid question, but good questions. He's, he's a wonderful questioner, Jesus was. But anyway, I said to him, so I said, I agree with you that what Jesus did on Calvary's cross was finished. He paid for the sins of the world. I said, but let me ask you a question. When did Jesus apply that to your life? He said, now. So I said, that's all the Adventists are saying. He's in heaven applying what he did back there to our life now. Completing the work in us by his grace. Okay, how did I get off on that? Can I sneak a few more minutes here? If you have to leave, you go ahead. But I really want to punch down on this. He was delivered up for our offenses, raised for our justification, chapter 5. Therefore, because he was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, you can't be justified without a living Christ. Verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, what does that word justified mean? It means to be put in harmony with God. You cannot be justified without being in harmony with God. You, do you like to hear somebody play the piano that's out of harmony? No, no I don't like to pay, hear that either. You don't want me playing the piano because I can't make it harmonize, even though my mother tried for three years. Some people have it and some people don't. Therefore, having been put into harmony with God by faith in Christ, what's the difference between faith and belief? The devils believe and so what's the difference between their belief and our faith? Because when the devils believe, they hate God. They're not evolutionists because they know where it all came from. But they hate him. The difference between faith and belief, our faith, we love God. We believe him and we love him. That's right. All right. Uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're in harmony with God, there's peace through Jesus Christ. Uh, and I... I'd like to take some time. To, I, I've already talked about how much Jesus is worth. Who is this Jesus? He's a creator. He's worth more than all of us put together. Through whom we have access into this faith, into this grace in which we stand. How do you get access into this grace in which we stand? My wife and I, some years ago, she it was not an Adventist. It was a non-Adventist friend of ours. We, we wanted to sell. A, we had a house in the suburbs, and we wanted a house in the country, and we had a mortgage on that house, and so I didn't have the money to, you know, get a, I didn't want to go through a, oh, what kind of loan do they call that, bridge loan, all that kind of thing, so risky stuff. Anyway, her friend found out about it, our friend found out about it, and he came to us and he said, um, don't worry, I'll just buy that house, and then when you sell your house, you can get a new mortgage and pay me off. I said, really? You do that? He said, Sure. So the day of the closing, you know what a closing is. That's, when, that's the day you, you get the house. So we go to the closing. The realtor's there because the realtor's going to get paid. And, um, and we come in. There's no mortgage. And we come in. We sit down. And the closing people are there. And our friend comes in. 
and sits down. And I'm sitting beside the realtor. And the realtor looks at him, and he leans over to me, and he says, who's that? I said, without him, there's no deal. He said, well, who is it? So I said, it's so-and-so, and this person is deceased now. But he says, why didn't you tell me? I wouldn't have worried. Because the minute I said his name, he knew he was able to perform what he'd promised. And at the closing, man pulls out his checkbook and writes the check. And we have access into this new home. Not new, but new to us. That's what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. He wrote the check so that now you have access into the grace of God in which you now stand. Standing in God's grace is not an on and off again experience. And yet it's not cheap grace either. Standing in God's grace. Let me use another illustration. I'll come back to the standing in God's grace. How many of you guys remember the day you asked your wife to marry you? If you're married. Okay. I, I can remember... Got that real good in my head. So, you know, we, we, go, we go to this woman and we say to her, you know, I love you. Tell her all the things. I, I'll make a wonderful life for you. If you just marry me, I'll put my covering over you. And we make the speech, don't we? And we mean every word of it. And she looks at us. I'm talking about in proverbial kinds of things here. She looks at us and she, she has now a decision to make, Right? And the decision is, will she trust you or not? Does she trust you or not? Does she trust what you're saying? And finally, she comes to the decision and she says, okay, I trust you, I believe you, and yes, I'll marry you. So everybody's happy, you get married, and now let me ask you a question. Is she a free moral agent, yes or no? Can she get a divorce? I didn't say she should. I said, can she? And the answer to that is, because she is a? So you're standing in God's grace. It's like a covenant relationship. It's not an on and off thing. But can you get a divorce from Christ? And how do you get a divorce from Christ? How do you get a divorce from Christ? I hope by the grace of God you never want to get a divorce. But you can get a divorce two ways. One, you can say, I don't love you anymore. I'm walking out of this relationship. And, and the other one, it, you can get a divorce like they got a divorce in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, where Jesus on the day of judgment, says to a bunch of Christians, I don't know who you are. What? You can hear the, you can hear the reaction, emotional reaction. What do you mean? 
We did this in your name, worked miracles in your name, did all these kinds of wonderful things in your name. Please. He said, I don't know you. In other words, they got a divorce. How did they get a divorce? Because they conscientiously, premeditatively resisted the appeals of the Spirit of God to repent and eventually convinced themselves that Jesus didn't care. I've heard people say, well, David, David, when he did his terrible thing, he, he was still saved. I said, really? That was premeditated, pre-thought out, pre-everything. And I'm here to tell you that I believe that David was a lost man, but Behold the grace of God. Behold the grace of God. It was the grace of God that kept David alive. Would the devil have killed him? But God kept him alive. It was the grace of God that raised up Nathan the prophet. It was the grace of God that sent the Holy Spirit to David to convict him of sin. And when the grace of God brought the lesson home, it was David who fell in repentance. Behold the grace of God. My dear brothers and sisters, the grace of God is not a trickle. The grace of God is like an ocean fill. And the grace of God pursues us. He does not let go of us very easy. Thank God that we can stand in the grace of God. And by all means, don't get a divorce. Because if you do, you have everything to lose and nothing to gain. It's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for your love and mercy to us. Thank you for helping us in every direction. And I pray that as we come back tomorrow, that you will be our helper and our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.